All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. I want to finish a message I started two weeks ago. Part two of Loosed on the Sabbath. Last time I mentioned we often have a hard time seeing how an individual piece of Scripture fits and talked about a puzzle piece and how sometimes we have a hard time figuring out how this jigsaw puzzle piece fits into the puzzle and so we don't get down on this level and look at it and inspect it. We have to see it from the air. And so similarly, Luke 13, 10 to 21, and actually extending the rest of the chapter, if you view it from the ground, Luke 13, 10 to 21, it's one awesome healing and what seems to be two unrelated parables about mustard seed and leaven. Yet at the same time, if you view it from the air, from above the puzzle piece, so to speak. It's an amazing, beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. And we say when we hear or read the kingdom of God, we should envision the rule of God, the reign of God in human hearts. And so a bird's eye view last time, if you'll remember, we saw the kingdom manifested. There was a woman so twisted and bent over with arthritis she couldn't even look up. Jesus loosed her on the Sabbath in the synagogue and we saw the kingdom rejected. While she got unbent, the synagogue ruler literally got bent out of shape as he loved rules, religion, and tradition more than God or people. He wouldn't have been too happy to show up and have to have been flexible like we were this morning, would he have? Mm -hmm. And so what did he do? He rebuked Jesus underhandedly and cowardly by yelling at who? The people. Instead of yelling at Jesus. And so then we saw the kingdom defended. Nothing in Scripture forbade healing on the Sabbath. It's always lawful to do good. The Sabbath traditions of the Jews corrupted the purpose of the Sabbath and the leaders were condemned by their own actions. They'd go loose an animal on the Sabbath, but they didn't want Satan to be defeated and this woman to be loosed on the Sabbath in the Lord's house. And so we come this morning to focus on the parables and so we in essence see the kingdom of God illustrated. So we have seen it manifested, rejected, defended, and now illustrated. And what we find is the kingdom of God, the reign of God in human hearts, pictured as a mustard seed and as leaven. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. It won't be long. Just uh, a few quick verses for Luke 13. We're only going to read verses 18 to 21. He, Jesus, said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. The word of God of the people of God and the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Father, so much for the time that you've allowed us to come into your house and just to praise you and worship you and magnify your name. Father, to gather together and just be encouraged by one another and, Father, by you and your scripture, Father, that we can go forth this week and have the strength and the courage that we need to live a life for you. Now, Father, we thank you for this time that we have, the remainder of our service, to continue to worship after we've worshiped you in song worship you through the preaching of your word and then Father the giving of our offerings and so Father we ask that you would bless the remainder of this service and the remainder of this day in your wonderful name and it's in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray Amen, Amen. Alright so let's look at the kingdom of God illustrated first the mustard 
seed. So look at verse 18. He, Jesus, said, therefore. Remember what I've taught you. Anytime you see the word therefore, circle it and ask, what's it there for? So this teaching comes out of the preceding incident in the synagogue. So he's healed this woman. The synagogue ruler rejected that. Said come back every other day of the week, even though the woman probably has. Jesus said you'll go out and loose your ox, but you don't even want this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, to be loosed. And so he's teaching on the kingdom. And so he said, therefore... So it's a link to the preceding thing. Like we said, we look at it and we think it's just a puzzle piece sitting out there, but these are connected together uh, all about the kingdom of God. And so it's one big theme. And remember we said that the kingdom of God was what Jesus taught on the most. And so we saw the kingdom manifested, rejected, defended, and we see it illustrated. Look at what Jesus says. What is the kingdom of God like? He's given an illustration. To what shall I compare it? So his teaching directly on the kingdom comes in parabolic form. So this is a parable, and what did we say a parable is? It's an earthly story with heavenly meaning. And so the big picture, if you get nothing else out of the mustard seed, the big picture of it is the kingdom of God's extension. The kingdom of God's extension. So Jesus said, how would I illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed. Look at what he says. That a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So let's unpack this. I'll give you, I think it's three points under this and then we're going to look at some additional teaching. But the first point is the growth. The growth of the kingdom. What Jesus is referring to here, the scientific term is synapsis nigra. It's not a herb, but a bush. And it can grow upwards of 12 to 15 feet in height. Made me think of like an okra plant. Okra plant is a very tiny seed. Any of you ever planted okra? And that thing gets taller than I do, doesn't it? And so you imagine this tiny little seed that you plant, and then it becomes this 12 to 15 foot, really, tree. <coughs> If it's a 15-foot tall tree, then birds can come and nest in it. Matthew and Mark both talk about this parable as well, and in their parable they focus on the small size of it, that it's small as a mustard seed, but Luke's focus is not the small size, but the large final form, the growth. So think about it. Acts 1 in 33 AD, you know how many people were gathered in Jerusalem? 120 people. Today, how many people across the planet claim to follow Christ? 2.3 billion. You see the growth? So it's gone from 120 in Jerusalem to 2.3 billion, literally, all across the planet. Alright, so the growth, second is the product. Look at it, it says that birds made nest. If you just take that at face value, a tree grows and birds make nests in it. Why do birds make nests in a tree? Home. Shade, refuge, shelter. See, I think sometimes we overthink Scripture and we over-spiritualize stuff. And you're going to see that point in just a second. Look at Psalm 46.1. 
Because Psalm 46.1, the psalmist points that very thing out. Who is your rest and home and refuge and strength? God is. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We're like tiny, helpless birds that are nesting, finding refuge in Him. And so, inquiring minds want to know, who, what are these birds? And as I said, I think you've got to be very careful about what's called allegorizing or over-spiritualizing every little detail, particularly in parables. In parables, you don't want to over-spiritualize things, but people will. So, who are these birds? Some people say that the birds are evil, that they're demons or even Satan himself. And they use the parable of the sower in Matthew 3, or 13, I'll read you that, as an example. So Matthew 13, 4, And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And in explaining that, Jesus says, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. But again, you've got to be careful because in some parables, you may find, you can take two parables. One, there's a man mentioned. Another one, there's a man mentioned. They're both men. You cannot apply the same thing to this as this. Just because the man is positive in this one does not mean that his character is positive in this one. Amen? So you have the parable of the unforgiven servant. He's a man. He's a terrible man. He's been forgiven all this, and he won't even forgive a guy who owes him a penny, and so he beats him, literally. So you can't just say, okay, it's birds, and so because previously Jesus talked about birds being demons and Satan, now he's talking about birds in another parable, it must be demons and Satan. Shake your head like this. Remember, what have I said over and over and over? Context, context, context. If we just read it as a story... You say it becomes a big, huge tree and birds nest in it, then we automatically said what? That's just a place to find home, refuge, rest, and shelter. And so the fact that there are some demons in the kingdom is certainly true. Amen? Dr. McGee said every church has one devil. And certainly that sometimes is the case. But what is it that Jesus meant here? I believe that he's talking about that the birds are good, that the birds are welcome to guests. The birds are the Gentiles. Remember who just rejected him? Who just rejected him in the preceding healing story? A Jewish man. And his philosophy was this. I'm Jewish, and therefore I'm golden. I'm automatically in the kingdom. And we have people today that still believe the same thing. I'm Baptist, and I was baptized Southern Baptist, and therefore, I'm good to go. I'm automatically in. Y'all heard it said, I was raised in church. Jesus is saying, phooey on that. Phooey that you think your heritage has got you automatically in the kingdom. And so now he's coming with a parable saying, here's these birds, and he's going to tell it later. Look at uh, down to 
verse 29. And people will come from east and west and north and south. That's a picture of the Gentiles. And where are they going to be sitting? At the supper table. And some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And look at what he says before that. He says, you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves will be what? Cast out. So he's saying, here's a picture. The very last people that the Jewish people thought would be in that tree was the Gentiles. And they thought, we're Jewish, we're automatically in, we're in the tree. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not necessarily the case. It's about a personal relationship. Alright, we'll look at uh, how Ezekiel 17 is really the best image of that in just a minute. Dr. Barclay says, In the east, the regular symbol of a great empire was a mighty tree, and the subject nations who found shelter and protection within it were typified by birds in the branches. Dr. Bach says in the Old Testament, the pictures of picture of birds in a tree is consistently an image of calm and shelter. Daniel, let me find that, talks about this in Daniel 4. So in a minute we're going to look at Ezekiel as the best picture, but I'll read you Daniel 4. Daniel writes, Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The birds of heaven does not sound like demons and Satan, does it? It sounds like believers. And so they lived in its branches. Alright, so that's the growth, the product... And now finally we'll look at the form. So turn with me to Ezekiel 17. Because this is the closest Old Testament parallel to what Jesus is talking about. I don't want you to take what I'm saying that the birds are positive just because I said so. Match it up to what Scripture says and then you decide for yourself. Amen? Ezekiel 17, 22-24 Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. So what's he talking about? A little plant that then becomes a massive tree. Sound familiar? And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom here, that it will be like a mustard seed that becomes this big massive tree and the birds of the air will nest in it, I believe he's talking about believers, and specifically this is really kind of pointing to them the Gentiles are going to be there and if y'all don't get your act together and believe in me as the Messiah, you won't. You will be cast out. Alright. Not to mention, think about this. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who would have been voted most unlikely to help? The Samaritan. That was the twist. Because who were they expecting? 
Well, then he says, you know, here comes by this one and here comes by this one. They pass by and oh, here comes the Samaritan. They're expecting him to say, this guy didn't help either. And then a Jewish layman came by and he helped because what they were expecting Jesus to say is that your religious leaders are a farce. And they won't help anybody that's even laying half dead in a ditch. But what the twist is, Jesus said, the Samaritan who y'all hate comes by and he what? Was a neighbor to them. And so what they were expecting the kingdom to be was this massive cedar that suddenly appeared. What was the Jewish expectation at that time that the Messiah would come and do? Release them immediately from the throes of Rome. That was what they wanted, right? And so Jesus is saying it's not going to come. This is a surprise twist. He says it's not a cedar. It's a mustard seed. And a mustard seed takes some time to grow. And it's going to grow slowly. And eventually it will be big enough that the birds of all the earth can come and nest in its branches. But it's a twist. He's saying the kingdom's not coming as you think it is, and this is going to mess you up. If you think that I'm coming as a king who's <coughs> going to overthrow Rome immediately and set up my kingdom now, you're missing the point. And so what did the disciples continuously argue about? That very thing. Jesus, when your kingdom comes, you remember after he's shown them 40 days by many infallible proofs, as Luke says, that he was alive. And then they come up and they go, now Jesus, are you going to restore your kingdom now and overthrow Rome? And I know he's just going, he's going, I could have had a V8 for breakfast. <laughs> Y'all still don't get it. But he's saying even here, it's coming in a surprising manner. Alright, so I want us to consider a couple things about the kingdom. Five things quickly. One is there is room in the kingdom for a wide variety of beliefs. If you go to Africa and talk to Christians, you go to China and talk to Christians, you go to Ecuador, Nicaragua, Pakistan, America, and you talk to Christians, you know what you're going to get? A whole amalgam of beliefs. A whole wide variety of beliefs. I mean, even Baptists differ, right? Y'all remember me telling the joke that the guy's on the bridge and he's going to jump off. This guy comes by, he's trying to talk him off of the bridge, and he says, well, man, he says, do you, do you belong to a church? And he said, yeah. He said, no, I'm a Baptist. Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm a Baptist, too. He said, are you a Southern Baptist? And he said, yeah, I'm a Southern Baptist. He's like, that's awesome. I am too. Or are you a free will Southern Baptist? And he says, uh, yeah, I'm a free will Southern Baptist. He's like, man, we got so much in common. Are you a free will Baptist of 1834 or free will Baptist of 1836? And he said, I'm free will Baptist of 1834. He kicks him off the bridge and says, die, you heretic. <laughs> now, that's a terrible supposedly funny story, but the point being, that's how we do. We allow no variation for belief whatsoever in the kingdom. Dr. Barclay says, no individual and no church has a monopoly of all truth. If we would get that through our thick heads, we would go a long way to loving God and loving people. Amen? And so, I don't care if you're amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. What we can agree on is this. Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. I don't care if it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, 
Whatever. I don't care if you think we ought to have no music, old music, new music. I don't care if you think we ought to have everybody reading King James Version or everybody uh, reading a New Living Translation. I don't care what your thoughts are on election predestination, everything in between. How about this? Jesus is God. Jesus is King. And He alone rescues the perishing. We got to get out of this focus on all this minutia that does not matter and we got to hold the first level stuff and we got to love God, love each other and go win the world for Christ. Amen. Amen. Alright, second is there's room in the kingdom for a wide variety of experiences. Again, quoting from Dr. Barclay, he says we do infinite harm when we try to standardize Christian experience. Let me give you an illustration of that. Me, and I'll pick again on Will. Okay? Me. My salvation experience was an earth-shattering experience. I remember the day, hour, and minute it occurred. And you've probably heard other people talk about that. They were drug dealers. They were murderers. Something earth-shattering, and they can tell you, this is the very moment that I got saved. Will may not be able to have such an absolutely definable moment because he was... Raised in a house of Christians. He was raised in church. His heart was naturally open to the Lord. And so he received the Lord. He believed on the Lord. Here's the thing. Both experiences are from God and both people belong to God. Amen. Amen. And so there's a room for a wide variety of experiences. Third, there's room for a wide variety of worship. Guarantee you, when we went to Africa, Africa worship is not Ecuador worship. And ain't neither one of them American worship that I've ever seen. And I guarantee you, Jimmy's going to come and tell us some stories about how Pakistani worship is different. And can I tell you that First Baptist Church and First United Methodist Church and First Assembly Church are not the same. And even in the Baptist, First Baptist Church is not Hope Community and is not uh, Crossway Baptist. And heaven forbid, if what we had to do this morning, you had to do it some other churches, they'd probably have a heart attack. Amen? Amen. But here's the point. There's a variety of worship. Some want just ritualistic, just methodical. That's where the Methodist name comes from. Some don't want anything. They just want like we did this morning. Acapella and your voices. Some are a one out of ten on the spirit meter, the frozen chosen. Some are a fifteen out of ten on the spirit meter, the ponging belonging. Y'all like that? They're ponging all over the place. I may raise my hand. I may holler, Amen, Hallelujah. Preach it, brother. I may want a blend of contemporary. Somebody else may sit like this, never say amen, never have their hands raised, and only want hymns. Is one better than the other? No. no. As long as it glorifies God and exalts Jesus Christ, that's, right. that's all that matters. Amen. And we'd get all this mess out of our head that we've got to have worship this way and this way. More church wars have been fought on worship, I think, than probably anything else. And you know, as I said last week, to which Alyssa, amen, the problem, you know why we fight over that? Because we think worship is about who? Me. Worship ain't about Buffy Cook. Y'all didn't come to worship Buffy Cook. You came to worship Jesus Christ, who created and saved you and is coming back one day to take you to Him. All right, four. There's room in the kingdom for all kinds of people. Notice what it says. 
I'm going to read you the Bodhi translation. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the white birds of the air made nests in its branches. Is that what it says? It says what? The birds. Well, what kind of birds? Blue birds, black birds, red birds, purple birds, yellow birds, and multicolored birds. Amen? Amen. We have labels. The kingdom does not. Amen. Colossians 3.11 is clear. We are all in Christ. There ain't Greek. There ain't barbarian. It's all one. The whole thing about black Jesus, white Jesus, Pakistani Jesus, well, he ain't none of those colors if you don't understand the Scriptures. He was Jewish. He's closer to the look of a Pakistani than he is an African American or a white. But the point being, there's zero color distinctions in the kingdom. We're all children of God. That's right. All right, number five, final thing on this part is there's room in the kingdom for all nations. What country did the birds fly from into the kingdom? All. All. Now, when we went to Mexico, luckily this time I had my passport. So I was able to get into Mexico. Why? Because without it, I wasn't getting in there. Because the world has what? National boundaries. This is Mexico. This is America. This is Canada. This is, you know, Pakistan. This is Uganda. The kingdom has no such barriers. Listen to Revelation 7. There's going to be a lot of people disappointed because this verse is going to be true. Because there's a lot of people think that heaven's going to be all white or all black. And they're going to be sadly mistaken. If you can't get along with black people, white people, red people, yellow people here now today, you're not going to get along in heaven. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From where? Every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and were they crying out with a loud voice saying, Man, aren't we good people? Salvation belongs to who? Our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And think about it, brothers and sisters. There's room for Americans, Africans, Ecuadorians, Pakistanis, Chinese, and we're not called to foreign missions. We're commanded. We as a church have not been called to take the gospel from the end of the street to the end of the earth. We have been commanded to do so. We're commanded to do it through our prayers, through our giving, and then through our going. Alright, so that's the kingdom of God illustrated mustard seed. Let's look now at 11. Look at verse 19 and 20. Again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all Leavened. Again, Jesus is teaching on the kingdom in parable form. What's a parable? Earthly story with what? Heavenly meaning. meaning. Alright, earlier I told you that the big picture with the mustard seed was the kingdom of God's extension. This one is the kingdom of God's transformation. And so look at what he says. It's like leaven a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So our first task in properly exegeting this text is not for me to tell you particularly what I think it means, but what it can mean, and you've got to decide on this yourself. So it comes down to this. How is Jesus using the picture of leaven? Is it positive or negative? Because there's two main camps of interpretation. Jesus is using this parable, uh, the picture of leaven negatively, 
or he's using it positively. I'm going to tell you which one I believe. We're going to go through both of them. Okay? First, negatively. Dr. McGee says, quoting him, leaven never represents good as used in the Bible. It's used 98 times in the Bible, 75 in the Old Testament, 23 in the New Testament. He says it's always used in a bad sense, yet this is simply not true. Now, I quote you that because I love Dr. McGee and I listen to him all the time. And I love Dr. Rogers and I listen to him all the time. But there's things Dr. McGee says I don't agree with. There's things Dr. Rogers says I don't agree with. And here's the thing. There's probably some things I may say and you may not agree with me and I may not agree with you. But you know what? We still love each other. As I said, no individual, no church has a monopoly on the truth. Okay? I'm going to point out to you why I think that this is not true. First is, what have I told you over and over? The law of first mention. Where is leaven first mentioned in the Bible? I heard somebody say Leviticus. Most of you, I think, would probably pick Exodus. It's actually Genesis 19.3. Turn there so I can show you that. I'll read verse 1 through 3. You focus in on 3. Moses writes, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So, why did he bake them unleavened bread? Was Lot a sinful person? Yes, but we read that he was a righteous man. Are the angels sinful? No. So why did he bake unleavened bread? It's out of haste. How long would it have taken you to bake a feast and it be leavened bread in it? A while. Right? So it's not saying that the leaven is sinful or bad in and of itself. It's simply out of haste. Alright. Second, the highest concentration of the use of leaven is in Exodus 12 to 13. More than the whole book of Leviticus. Yes, as part of the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, Israel was to use no leavened bread during the Passover meal and for seven days after because it was symbolic of what? Sin and removing that. But first and foremost, why was it that they were to have unleavened bread? The same reason in Genesis 19.3 because it was out of haste. Look at Exodus 12. If you'll turn there. I'll read you a couple of verses, starting verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it, how? In haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Look at verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, Verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Why? Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions 
for themselves. All right, the biggest and the final really is this. The third is the thank offering. In Leviticus 7, 11 to 14, you can go read it later, leavened bread could be used as a thank offering. So if you can use leavened bread as a thank offering, is that not positive? Yes. So you see that to say that it's always used in a bad sense, I don't think is exactly true. But let me give you some teaching from this camp. Threefold. One, we should avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees in the church is legalism. They had heads full of Scripture and hearts full of sin. Their religion was on the outside, not on the inside. And so if you have the leaven of Pharisees, legalism, you know what it will cause the church to do? Right. Second is the leaven of the Sadducees, which was liberalism. They didn't believe in the resurrection or supernatural. Jesus said of them that they were mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. I'd shared this with Marty. Dr. Rogers said a recipe for liberalism is just that, not knowing the Scriptures and not believing the power of God. So we have the leaven of Sadducees in our church. It'll be a church that's just full of air and nothing else. Third is the leaven of Herod, and that's licentiousness. That's immorality, pleasure. Herod used religion. He abused it for his own pleasure and power, and that leaven will cause any church to puff up. Alright, so back to that was the negative camp, now the positive camp. Again, what have I said? Context, context, context. I already showed you that leaven's not always used in Scripture as negative. Sometimes it's used as positive, so context will determine. So look back at this section of Scripture that we're in. The healing that Jesus told, is the healing positive or negative? Positive. Was the first parable positive or negative? The one of the mustard seeds. Positive. So doesn't it logically follow that the second parable is also positive? And so in Jewish thought, leaven can is often thought of as influence. So not something bad, but as positive influence. And so you know the practice of leaven, we don't understand that, right? Because we have all-purpose flour, self-rising flour. You throw a little baking soda, baking powder in there if you want to make it rise. But what would they do? They would keep a little piece of the leavened dough and then they would put it into the unleavened and it would leaven the whole bunch so that it would rise, right? And so this woman takes a pinch of leaven and hit it in three measures of flour. I put my notes, leaven's like brill cream. Y'all remember brill cream? A little dab will do you. Corky remembers. A little dab of leaven will do you. Three measures of flour was 50 pounds of flour. She takes three little pinches and puts it in there and it leavens the whole bunch. So the picture is this. A small amount goes into a much larger mass of flour and makes itself felt throughout and causes a visible transformation in the flower. It puffs up and rises, right? That's the picture that Jesus is given of transformation. So quickly think of a couple things here. First is that the kingdom of God starts from the smallest beginnings. How big is leaven? It's very tiny. How many folks does it take to transform a family? How many folks does it take to transform a church or a community? One dedicated life is all that it takes. 
How did God turn the world upside down? Twelve men that knew Jesus Christ. One man. And so, if you remember the song we sang last week, and we'll sing it again next week, hopefully the Lord willing, build your kingdom here to see the captive's heart released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church and we pray revive this earth. I don't care if you're the only Christian where you live. You be the leaven, the influence that will transform hearts and lives. You do that and then you'll see the kingdom grow before your own eyes. Amen? Second is the kingdom of God works unseen. Have y'all ever seen leaven working? You ever got your microscope out and looked microscopically to see how your cake was rising? Of course we don't do that. Yet the whole time it's doing its thing, isn't it? And I thought about Steve. You remember what he said, Cassie? When we first met Steve, he said, I love Guinness. I love beer. And all the time we didn't know but that little bit of leaven that had been introduced in him, that positive influence of Christ is working. You can take a microscope out and you probably couldn't have seen it working, but it was working. And Steve went from a man who says, I love Guinness, to a man who now stands up and preaches, I love Jesus. We couldn't see it working, but it was there working all the time. And I think especially as a leader, sometimes we wonder, are our lives making a difference? And what I'm doing every week making a difference? I think as a church we wonder, are we making any difference? You know, sometimes we grow weary. I told Dr. Craig, I said, you know, y'all heard me say why I love deer hunting because a lot of times I learn spiritual lessons. And I cannot tell you how many times I sat in the deer stand this season, hour after hour, watching my watch going, am I ever going to see any deer? And in the last 15 minutes, was when the most activity happened. And I think, brothers and sisters, a lot of times in our lives, we grow weary. We're waiting on Jesus to come back. We're waiting on God to do something big. And you know what we do? We crawl out of the deer stand and we leave before we ever see what God had for us. We've got to stay faithful. It's with good reason that the Bible says, do not grow weary of doing good. All right, third, the kingdom of God works from inside. If you put the leaven outside the dough, is it going to do any good? No. Only way you can change people is from the inside. Remember what Don said? You can't legislate morality. Task of Christianity is to make what? New people. That's why the church is the most important institution in the world. It's the factory where new men and women are produced. And then the kingdom of God's power finally comes from outside. The dough has no power to change itself. It has to come in contact with the leaven. We don't have the power to change ourselves. Only as we come into contact with King Jesus will we experience the kingdom of God, Him reigning in our hearts. I mean, we've tried and failed to change from the outside. Every four years or eight years, we put a new president in the White House. We put new Supreme Court justices in the highest court of the land. We vote in new Congress members occasionally. We get new technology. And we think all that stuff is going to make our world better and better. And you know what? I think it's getting worse and worse. 
We've got to have a power outside and beyond us. What did Jesus say? Unless ye be born again. That's the only way it can happen. Alright, in closing, there was a family from a remote area and they were making their first visit to this big city and they checked into this big hotel and stood in amazement at everything. And they were leaving the reception desk after they checked in, they come to elevator. They're amazed by these multiple shiny walls all around them that move apart and come back together again. The son asked the dad, said, what is this thing, dad? And father, who had never seen an elevator, he said, son, I ain't got no clue. I ain't never seen nothing like this in my whole life. I don't know what it is. So they're watching wide-eyed. This old lady hobbles up. Y'all may have heard this before. <laughs> to the elevator and walks inside and hits a button and they watch it go the numbers go up, ding, and then they watch the numbers come down. And the doors open, and out drops this dead gorgeous 24-year-old model. And the father's standing there with his mouth the gate, and he elbows his son, and he says, quick, go get your mama. <laughs> I love what Dr. Hughes said. Listen to this. He said, if we could see others as Jesus sees them, we would see dead people staring with fixed, dilated eyes, indistinguishable on the outside from the truly alive. We would see the blind man and the maimed. But when Jesus says, you are freed, glazed eyes would flicker open with redeeming light and lives twisted by sin would stand straight. And erect. What's the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? Leaven has the power to transform. Mustard seed, the potential to extend from the end of the street to the end of the earth. Brothers and sisters, I pray we never grow weary of throwing the seed that will extend the kingdom and transform lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you so much for this time together. Father, just ask that you would forgive us in the many ways in which we have failed you. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have had together just to worship you. Such a sweet, sweet service that you've given us today. And Father, I pray that each of us will take it. Father, we will use it this week to help us to get through this week. Father, we pray for each and every person that is sick. We pray for those that need rest and to need restored. We pray for any other unspoken requests, Father, that are here in our church, that you would just meet each and every one of those according to your good will and according to your good timing. Father, we ask that you would just give us a good day in the remainder of this day that we have. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So I think as far as an invitation, you know, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, really what you need is just liberty. You need to be loosed like that woman that Jesus healed. You need to be born again, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive Him and repent of your sins. I think if we all here are saved, then what we really need is Jesus as our Lord and our authority to submit to Him, to acknowledge Him as Lord and live out His teachings and live in anticipation of His return. We so many times talk about Jesus just come on back. We look at our country and think, man, won't Jesus just come on soon? But if Jesus were to come this afternoon, 
Are you okay with what you've done with the talents that He's given you? Are there people that you would say, Jesus, just give me 24 more hours. I need to go share the Gospel with somebody. As you think about that this week, if Jesus were to come back this afternoon and you can name five people, Jesus, just give me 24 more hours. What are we waiting for, brothers and sisters? If He does come back this this afternoon, it's not going to be... 24 more hours, it's over. As we'll look at next week, when he shuts the door, the door shut. So let's be a church that goes out this week and shares the gospel of the lost and dying world. So if y'all stand, we're going to sing. It's just an invitation. If anybody wants to come to the altar this morning, anything on your mind or heart, 134, we're going to sing that, and then we're going to have the altar. I hear the Savior say